So my Dhamma talk tonight is called uh, Wise Action in Times of Ecological Crisis. You know, in response to, you know, both just being outside and uh, our hearts opening to this beautiful land and earth and species here, and also holding the reality of the times we're living in, these unprecedented times of ecological crisis, and how we hold this, and how we meet this, and how we respond. These these Dharma teachings, uh, wisdom teachings, mindfulness practice is in the context of the Eightfold Path, which is a path of wise action and living in the world with uh, an awakened heart and mind. And that also involves meeting whatever life, what is happening in life. And in, we have our micro life and then we have our macro life and how we uh, interface with uh, the bigger social, political, economic, and ecological uh, reality. In that, I think the you know, Dharma practice and teachings are indispensable in helping us navigate in the same way that Dharma teachings help us navigate with dukkha, with suffering. They help us navigate the, the dukkha of climate change. They don't eradicate suffering. That's part of this, this world. But um, uh, there's much in the tradition and the teachings that we can draw on as supports. I'm going to touch on a few of those, not so many, but just more contextualizing and reflections and um, some current events. So, um, and one of the things that the Dharma practice helps us hold is paradox. Paradox of, of, um, of life, of life and death. Um, of paradox of self and not self, of separation and connection, of many kind of paradoxes. And, um, and we're living in a time of great paradox, where we're waking up to the beauty, beauty and mystery and complexity, unrepeatable dynamism and, and evolution that this planet has evolved into, and we are also seeing the very destruction of the, the sources of life that, that create that. These are not easy times to be awake in. So this is a, a poem that I like very much from a Russian poet called Anna Akhmatova. And she writes, this is a while ago, she wrote this. Everything is plundered, betrayed, and soul. Death's black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Then why do we not give up in despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep, transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. 
and the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses, something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. Misery gnaws to the bone, then why do we not give up in despair? Cherries blow summer into town. Cherries blow summer into town. Life blooms even in the midst of decay. So there's a word that I've come across from a uh, Australian eco-psychologist that is very, I think it's one of the, um, it's a new word in the lexicon of our times. Uh, it's called solostalgia, solastalgia, S-O-L-A-S-T-A-L-G-I-A. I've written about it some. It was, I wrote an article in Mindful Magazine, came out recently. And it's a, it's a, um, a combination of the Latin word salatium, salatium, comfort, and the Greek word algia, pain. And uh, I forget his name in this moment, but um, the eco-psychologist defined, defined as solastalgia as the pain experience where there is recognition that the place where one resides and that one lives is under immediate assault. Pain, when there is recognition that the place where one li- resides and loves is under immediate assault, right? Everywhere we go, the earth is under immediate assault. Whether it's through species loss, through forest fires, through acidification of the oceans, through coral reef loss, through topsoil loss, You can't look in any direction and not see some result of uh, all the causes and conditions that created uh, the crisis that we're in. So how do we hold that? How do we hold that paradox? How do we hold that which we love and uh, find an effective response? personally and, uh, and, and socially. So I'm going to explore that. It's kind of a big undertaking. So I'll do my <laughs> little, <laughs> little, little attempt at some reflections, um, mostly gleaned from, from people that inspire me and, and I look to for, for guidance on these things. So a monk once asked the Chinese master Yun Men, I was a great um, Chinese Buddhist teacher. What is the work of the awakened life? What is the work of the awakened life? Like, what is the fruit? What is the, the fruition of that? And he replied, an appropriate response. An appropriate response. Right? What is the what? What arises out of awakening? Clear seeing, compassionate heart an appropriate response to the moment. So what is an appropriate response to these climate crises and ecological crises, times we live in? I mean, a good question for yourself. What is my response? And I'm sure many of you are wrestling with that every day. What is the appropriate response to this? One response is going to the woods and falling in love. That is an appropriate response to recognize and remember and touch deeply that which we love and, and be
be with it in a very deep, contemplative, reverential way. Right? That's what you've been doing. And that's deeply, deeply important. That maybe if everybody did that, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. Right? Imagine, you know, if Congress came here for a week, <laughs> right? Or however, 500 and some number of them, and they sat in the woods, right? And had lizards crawl over them and, you know, like maybe then there would be, you know, and then they sat here through when the forest fires come through, you know, which they have done the last two years, right? And wake up, wake up. Some of them are waking up slowly. Some of the congressmen in Florida who previously were climate deniers and suddenly they're their constituencies are being flooded and drowned and, and, you know, Miami and along the coast, etc. So when we're in nature, when we're outside, when we bring a contemplative awareness, we see, we touch into uh, perhaps at times a deep sense of our connection, a deep sense of our interdependence. And I've been pointing to this some, a deeper sense of our mutuality that we are intimately woven into the fabric of life. What Arnie Ness first coined the phrase, the ecological self, one of the first eco-psychologists, the ecological self. So really what we've been cultivating here is an ecological self, right? We're broadening the sense of me and my, and my life and my boundaries to know actually myself is is all of air and all of water and all of the earth and all of the elements and everything and everyone, every being that I'm not separate. And it's not just a nice new age concept, <laughs> it's real. And I, as, I, as I deepen in my own understanding of, of, of this practice, it, it feels more real. It's not just a nice idea. Dr. King, who said, whatever one affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. It's deep, it's interwoven, it's subtle. The Buddha said exactly the same thing in different ways. And so um, what this ecological crisis is, is pressing in on, on, on us as a species is to wake up to our common humanity, but also deeper than common humanity, a deeper uh, common kinship with life. That we, uh, as, our, as our lifestyle and our industry uh, destroys the very, th- the very fabric of life that we and all species depend on, we, you know, we can, we can take everything down, including ourselves. There's a, there's a slow dawning of that, slow waking up. And so as we wake up, hopefully both individually, socially, collectively, there's a movement, and there's many, many movements now, powerful, inspiring movements I'll speak about a little bit later, that are galvanizing people communities, governments, organizations. As one uh, 
forget which organization uh, uses this slogan, um, but similar to some teachers that I've studied with, uh, we are the Earth's immune system rising up. Right? The, the pain that you feel and the action that you take and the grief and the movement to want to do something and make a difference, however small it is, it's part, you're part of the Earth's immune system waking up to the fact that it's sick, that it's in distress, that it's dying. Right? So each of us in our own ways, and that is a growing waking up of the immune system, right? the immune system that's numbed by drugs of media and lies and distortion is waking up to the fact that we're dying. So hopefully, and, and I trust that, that your time here, you've you know, more deeply opened your heart and fallen in love with life, beings, lizards, grasses, trees, birds, whatever, whatever touched you this week. And, and, and that's, that is also part, you're waking up to ourselves, waking up to the beauty and the preciousness. And we want to be drawing on that love, that connection. So, um, uh, in the Buddhist world, I would say in the last five years, or certainly the, the, the Buddhist teacher body that I know, in the insight world and, and a little bit beyond that, slowly waking up to the climate crisis, slowly beginning to speak to it as a community. We, we shied away from it. Um, whenever I used to bring it up, I, the room would glaze over and this kind of numb hopelessness grew, a cloud would descend. And, um, uh, but you know, slowly more and more teachers are starting to speak to it. This is from uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the, who's become a great activist and also one of the preeminent scholars and translators of the ancient texts. And uh, he's uh, encouraging us to explore this Buddhist teaching, Samvega, where he describes as Siddhartha Gautam as the Buddha's urgent response to the prospect of sickness, aging, and death to reach liberation and freedom from suffering. That Samvega is a, is a potential response to climate change in that it's a sense of urgency, it's an urgency to wake up to free ourselves from suffering and the suffering that we're causing. And he says, based on our understanding of the way things are, we, invited not to, we are invited not to panic, but to decisively and fiercely respond. Decisively and fiercely respond. And then he asks, what internal and external comforts must we abandon for the sake of all beings, personally and collectively? But I love this line, we must respond decisively and fiercely. Right? This is not going to be overcome by moderate action. Right? So I'm not going to um, uh, uh, burden you with the litany of things that are happening, because I'm sure you're all pretty aware um, of the crisis. Maybe not, but maybe, I would assume so. <laughs> but as I've been studying a lot recently, and one of the, two, the interesting things that come out is um, 
the need to talk about the crisis. Right? It's politically um, unpopular. Uh, it's uh, it's very unpopular in the media to bring it up. You know, it's like one of those conversations, like when you go home for Thanksgiving, no politics, no climate change. <laughs> and uh, maybe no gender politics either, you know. So it's become one of those device, sadly divisive, divisive topics. And yet one of the most effective, the one that we researched how people change, right? We, we, we change by influence on each other, and I'll talk about that in a minute. One of the ways we influence each other is by conversation. And um, it's remarkable how many people are not well-informed, not educated, because we live in a society where that's not doing its work. So as, as I mentioned, we're, we're in the sixth mass extinction. There's a potential of losing over a million species um, if we don't put a, a rapid end to uh, fossil fuel use and shift to a different greener economy. The UN report that I'm sure you all are aware of gives us about 12 years to, to radically reverse the uh, industrial society's use of fossil fuels. 12 years, radically short time, radically short time. And that would be, you know, just imagine what you were doing in 2006. It's that period of time to, to completely uh, reverse the use of fossil fuels into a sustainable energy. It's not the only thing that we're facing, but it's one of the major things we're facing to keep temperatures below 1.5 or 2 degrees. And, um, you know, we, it's barely a day goes by now that if you read the news, that there's some, we, we see the impacts of climate change. Bigger storms, bigger hurricanes, more tornadoes, more droughts, more fires, massive rise in temperatures, massive loss of ice and ice shelves and Arctic ice and right? huge, huge, huge radical changes to the environment and ecology. And way, way every year, scientists uh, change their predictions. The, the, the predictions get closer and closer what used to be 2075, 2100, now it's 2050, or it's 2040, various things that we're going to be severely feeling. So, <clears throat> from the perspective of practice, there's, there's different levels that we work at. One level is we first attend to how that is impacting us, how that lands in us. Right? Like Even just when I say a few little data points, and I'm purposely staying away from flooding you with data points because that would probably get quickly overwhelming and, and, and very engender maybe a sense of overwhelm was one of the first responses or bleakness or despair or sorrow or confusion or rage or you know something. Mostly uh, usually the net response to that is we want to numb out, right? You know, we just explore that minutely in our experience. We, something's unpleasant, something's unwanted. What do we do? We avoid, we back away, we retreat, we check out, we suppress, we do all kinds of things, not because we don't want to feel that. It's hard to feel. You know, and I think, you know, I forget what the percentage is, 
more than 50% of the coral reefs have gone. They may only last 20, 30 more years. That's, you know, if you're a diver, as I am, and a snorkeler and a lover of marine life, it's, it's one, it's inconceivable, and two, it's, it's just, it's, un, it's, it's unfathomable and, and hard to bear. This is dukkha, it's hard to bear, it's what the Buddha said. And that's why when I was sitting with Mankanalio, who's also an amazing scholar and, and translator, and, and he, at the end of his very deep retreat on, on mindfulness of breath, nothing to do with climate change, and then the last day, the, the closing going home talk, which is usually about you know how to practice in daily life, we spent now talking about climate change. And he said mindfulness is one of the most helpful things in response to climate change because mindfulness practice is facing the truth. We look at the truth of experience. We look at what's here, whether it's beautiful or ugly or painful or difficult or lovely. We train ourselves to look at the truth of experience. Right? This is an important skill, right? To learn how to, because that's a a, um, a support for equanimity, right? balance. Right? How do we stay balanced and engaged so we can act rather than be overwhelmed or numb out? Right? So first, um, so I've done a lot of uh, work with Joanna Macy, as I'm sure some of you have, and um, she's really been teaching for a long time, first with her nuclear guardianship work and now more with climate change in the last 20, 30 years and the growing ecological crisis which she's been teaching about and shouting about for a long time, getting people to wake up. Now people are really giving her attention. Um, She says we first have to grieve, we have to feel the pain, we have to feel the loss, we have to acknowledge the sadness and the sorrow that comes from hearing about species loss or you know all the many tragic things that are happening now again our practice helps us hold the sorrow right we're training how to be with deep painful emotions both joyful and painful and so i probably you know, i I doubt there's a day that goes by that I don't feel grief and I don't feel sad about what's happening ecologically. How could one not if one's paying attention? This is from uh, Mary Oliver. She writes, Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? This winter the loons came to our harbor and died one by one of nothing we could see. A friend told me of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out in the long, sweet savoring of its life, which, if you've ever heard it, you know is a sacred thing, and for which, if you've not heard it, you better hurry to where they still sing, and believe me, tell no one just where that is. The next morning, the loon speckled and iridescent and with a plan to fly home, to some hidden lake, was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. 
So we come here and we open, and it's hard to stay open, because when we're open, we feel, right? When someone we love, when something we love is hurting, right? It's hard, right? Those of you who, who do work with people who are suffering, right? We, that we can get fatigued with empathy and, and, and with facing suffering. So, some good news. Um, I was just reading about this this today. Um, it's called uh, um, I forget the, the the full title of it. Pluralistic, pluralistic. Someone know I'm going with this? Pluralistic um, something. Um, anyhow, uh, so the the definition of this is: humans are actually strongly motivated to act in a crisis as long as they are sure there is a crisis and they have a role in solving it. Humans are actually strongly motivated to act in a crisis as long as they are sure there is a crisis and that they have a role in solving it. And so part of this, this, this uh, research and point of view from this person was the need to speak about the climate crisis because there's still many people who don't realize we're in a climate crisis. Because our media is very busy ignoring the fact that we're in a crisis. And there's many interested corporations and uh, people, uh, lobbyists in Washington and, and climate science deniers who are very busy trying to distort what is a very, very, very clear, obvious, you know, uh, science and conclusion that humans massively are impacting climate. So um, people need to be sure there is a crisis before they respond. They need to have the right information, which is why it's important that we talk to people. And we talk to people and friends and family and people who we may have a different political uh, stance with. And then we need to see we have a role in solving it, right? That we can have some engagement, that we can do something, right? So the, this research comes out of a lot of those studies that you've probably come across where, um, say, someone on the New York subway feigns having a heart attack. No one, pe- dozens of people will walk past until somebody engages. When, they, when, they, when, when people take their cues from other people that it's, problem, that there's a way to help, then suddenly everybody helps. But they need to be kind of, we need to be led a little bit, that there's a problem and there's a solution and you can engage. It's a very interesting, you know, we're social species. We, we, we watch and we, we track and we follow each other. So we have to lead. And so the good news is there are millions and millions and millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world who are engaged in doing action, work, uh, um, for the benefit, for the welfare of people, species, the planet. There's a wonderful book from uh, a friend of mine, Paul Hawken, whose book called Blessed Unrest. Did anybody read that book? So he's tracking uh, social movement, uh, um, uh, I forget what it's called, the, the, the movement you know, nonprofits, NGOs, any organization that's doing work for people, planet, and uh, communities. 
and he, his organization tracked, they, they stopped counting at 1.7 million organizations around the world who were doing things like climate change work and you know, wetland restoration and species protection and, and habit, you know, all of that great stuff. 1.7 million organizations probably in, involving tens if not hundreds of millions of people affecting billions of people and species around the world. And this is the good news, right? There are many, many, many amazing, amazing, amazing people, organizations, towns, cities, businesses who are, you know, really doing amazing work to come up with very concrete solutions. You know, there's a there's a farm in just around the corner from here in in Nicasio that was one of the pioneering farms that's been exploring the the science of um, putting topsoil on land, on agricultural land, even um, uh, pasture land. Um, and uh, the science was something like if, if every farm in the world just put a quarter inch layer of um, uh, manure, uh, some kind of, of um, natural um, compost material on the topsoil, that it would sequester about 25% of the carbon from the atmosphere. Like There are solutions and there are people you know, developing solutions like Paul's latest book that he co-edited or authored um, called Project Drawdown, a hundred currently available technical solutions to climate crisis that are available, researched, and all they need is funding and scaling from, from something as simple as taking a certain... Um, uh, I forget what they called those things in fridges, the number one contributor. Um, refrigerant. Some kind of refrigerant. Freon? Is it Freon? It was Freon. Uh, it's something else now, but it's the number one cause, uh, one of the leading causes. It would be the quickest solution to reduce uh, carbon to educating girls, to um, you know, regenerating topsoil, to you know, sustainable green uh, energy and whatnot. Um, so, so I, I, have, I have a Facebook page. Um, I don't really like Facebook, but um, I'm on it uh, reluctantly. Well, my assistant's on it mostly, fortunately. Um, and um, uh, but I do have a page called "We Protect What We Love," which is uh, the sort of the motto of this work. And I only post positive, constructive articles about people doing good work in the world and, and positive news about climate change, a lot of it coming from Europe, um, all the different initiatives from, from uh, governments and, uh, and people. Um, I don't post as much as I could now, there's, there's more and more, you know, there's like every day I'm, I'm luckily getting news of people doing amazing work to, you know, to combat climate change and species loss and uh, you know, whatnot. And so it's important to, to also keep a balanced view and also look at the good news, right? There's a lot of amazing people doing amazing actions. And if we only focus on the, the data and, the, and the, the negative stuff, what happens? We feel collapsed, we feel despair, we feel overwhelmed. So, um, so what, is, what is the call to action? What, you, what, what arises for you in your life, on the retreat, in response to these issues? 
you know, what have you been doing, what are you called to doing, maybe something arose in this retreat. As I like to tell the story of John Seed, who was, is a Vipassana meditator, lives in New South Wales, one of your, um, uh, and a teacher with um, Joanna Macy, you familiar with him? And um, there's this great story of how he got involved. So he was, he was uh, I forget what he was doing at the time, but he wasn't an activist, but he had friends in act, who were activists in New South Wales in the time, and I'm sure it's still going on, uh, trying to log the old growth forest, and his friends called him to come help protest again. They were trying to pass, get an injunction passed in courts to slow down the logging, but, be, but that hadn't gone through, so they were just basically standing in front of the trucks and the bulldozers trying to stop them and lock the lock, getting them into the forest. And he's kind of in this big demonstration. He finds himself in front of the, the logging trucks and, and he's sort of a little out of his league because it's not really his thing to be sort of like a frontline protester. And then he has a profound uh, insight. He says, standing facing the bulldozers, whoever I had been was now subsumed into a vaster and truer identity. I realized that it's not me, John, defending the rainforest, but the rainforest defending themselves through me. And that's, that's interconnection. Right? It's not me defending the rainforest, but the rainforest defending themselves through me. Right? That's when we get out of the way. Right? This is where the teachings of not-self uh, come into play when we, when we get out of our own way, our own, our own story and limited views of ourselves, and maybe perhaps something, we feel something deeper calling, right? This is the waking up to our ecological self, you could say. So, um, so for myself, you know, I, I used to, I was definitely one of those activists um, in, you know, in the forests up in Humboldt and different places and in England and um, but these days you know that's not where I put my time I, I focused partly on trying to support environmental activists and um, do it supporting people who are on the front line but I'm, I'm also being asked to, to, to have a more public voice which I have to say I'm a little uncomfortable with because I don't feel like an expert in this subject but people also wanting I'm, I'm noticing people wanting to hear from contemplatives, what what is your response? Like, what has Buddhism got to say about this? Or what is a spiritual response to the climate crisis? I've heard from the activists, and I've heard from the, you know, politicians, and I've heard from the, you know, the experts and the scientists. And what about you lot? What about <laughs> you meditators? What do you got to say about this stuff? I'm like, well, you know, something. <laughs> so. Um, you know, and of course, it also means looking at, at how I'm I, how I'm living. Like, what's my carbon footprint? And my carbon footprint is way bigger than that I'd like it to be because I fly a lot for my work. You know, I think relatively my carbon footprint. I live a pretty simple, pretty frugal kind of lifestyle, except the flying. You know, and I fly to places mostly to teach. And um, some, you know, some of the justifications. Well, if I like I fly to Colorado, then 40 people in Colorado don't have to fly to me. I can go to them. That's sort of the logic. You know, it's not not watertight by any means. Um, and if we had a, you know, if I was in Europe, I'd be jumping on the train to Colorado. But I'm not because that would take about three days or something. 
Um, so, and then my other part of my work is is talking about it, like I'm doing today. Like it's it's a bit of a stretch for me to talk about this. It's not it's not my you know sort of domain of of expertise. I haven't been a climate activist for 20 years, 30 years. Like I've been a meditation student, you know. But it's important that we all do you know put our voice to this this issue right and i'm i'm giving this talk assuming well they know all about this stuff they don't need to, you know they 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 they're gonna you know they're, they're recycling or whatever they're doing you know they're you know driving their teslas or you know <laughs> donating them to me i don't know what but that, I, that's an assumption, you know. Maybe some of this is quite new to some of you. And it's like, oh, I haven't really thought about it. And how does my Dharma practice, you know, how does that relate? How does my meditation, how does my spiritual practice relate to the climate crisis? I've never really put those two together and I still haven't worked it out. You know, I've got my meditation life over here and I've got my work. And maybe I've got my, you know, people, the green candidate that I support or send money to and... But maybe it doesn't feel integrated. And I know for many people, it's like, what do I do? I'm not doing enough. That's probably the main thing I hear is I want to do more. How do I, how can I make, how can I make a difference? I feel so small and insignificant. And, you know, and, and, you know, from one level we are insignificant and another level we're interconnected, right? And what each one of us does makes a difference. There's that story from, Somewhere, I forget who tells the story of the two people walking along the beach. Uh, I think of Baja because I see this in Baja. So sometimes the storms come and it just wipes, it just washes thousands of starfish onto the beach. Just thousands. And I go, wow, what happened? The starfish, they're just lying on the beach and they should be in the water. And you, know, you want to throw them back in. And, so these two people are walking on the beach and there's thousands of starfish along the shore and one of them just as, at each step just picks one up, puts it back in the water, picks it up, puts it in the water and his friend says, what are you doing? There's thousands. You're not going to make any difference. How can you possibly make a dent in this? And he, said, and he picks up one starfish and he says, it makes a difference to this one. So what we do does make a difference. And, and if, if, we, if we really get that, then collectively we do make a difference. There's a story of the Buddha um, who uh, was, uh, was heir to uh, a kingdom. So the, so the story goes. And um, his uh, kingdom was the Shakyan kingdom. And... Uh, the, 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 there was the states in, at that time in northern India were often feuding, and it's kind of like medieval Europe, a lot of quite quite violent warfare and um, and you know, power changing hands. And so the Buddha was often counseling kings and noblemen to basically try and keep the peace in different ways. And uh, uh, the, the neighboring kingdom that was very powerful. Um, as a young man, he'd been slighted by um, the the ruler of the Shakyans, and, and he vowed that when he was king, he would come and and seek vengeance. And so he so he was on his way to do that. He had his army. He had a justification. And the Buddha got wind of this and uh, sat on the road uh, where the the army would have to pass. 
and uh, the and the Buddha sitting in, in the heat of the midday sun and this dead tree, and the king and the king says, "Why, you know, you know?" And, and the king, the king had a relationship with the Buddha and, and you know, had a respectful relationship, and um, they had a dialogue. And um, the Buddha, with his very skillful discourse, um, was able to 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 um, to encourage to discourage the king from going to war, and so the king, on hearing that and that on that dialogue, uh, withdrew his troops and uh, withdrew the the attack. And um, uh, you know, there's one person making a huge difference. You know, it did it did happen another time, and the Buddha wasn't able to successfully stop. So it's not a happy ever after story, but it's about the power that we can have when we put our convictions on the line. Right? So another simple example, so Bill McKibben of 350.org began the, the divestment uh, campaign from, from uh, fossil fuel industries trying to get pension funds and cities and, and wealthy uh, individuals to, to cease investing and, and you know, supporting fossil fuel industries. And, and, and by 2015, I forget when it started, it wasn't that long ago, it became the, the quickest growing divestment movement. And just the end of last year, there was $8 trillion worth of, of investments divested from the fossil fuel industry. Eight trillion dollars, which is you know, it's a significant amount of money taken away from probably what is the biggest industry in the world. Um, or I think about the 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 people uh, on on the Greenpeace boats. You know, they go out in their little Gemini's and they try and get in front of um, you know drilling operations in the Arctic or whaling operations, or you know, and they make a difference. They draw public attention. Um, like they did when seals used to be senselessly killed for fur, and they you know had a huge campaign, so things make a difference, actions make a difference so um I once went to see Joanna, who's a beloved teacher Joanna Macy, beloved teacher and friend of mine and and i and i my question, which is the same question I always have is. How do you not give up in despair? You know, you've been working, like facing like hard issues for 40, 50 years. She's now way in her 80s, if not more. Amazing, amazing elder activist. And she said, she said the most important thing to do is to never act alone. She says that the most important thing to do is do something, engage. Doesn't matter if you fail. What matters is that you engage with others. Okay? That you get involved with some group, some community, friends, family, organization, and you do something. The action is the, is the thwart for despair. Okay? It's the, the inaction that causes paralysis. So think about who your friends and allies are. What, what, what could you, what, who could you engage with as a support? And then another important thing, uh, which is a teaching from the Bhagavad Gita, which is from the, uh, the old uh, Hindu texts, um, where um, the teaching um, to Krishna is, uh, he's being told, you are the owner of your actions, but not the results. It's one of the main teachings of the Gita. You are the owners of your actions, you're the, but not the results. 
So we act, we engage, and but we hold lightly what happens, because that the what happens is that is not in, in our control. In some ways, maybe not even our business. Our business is to act skillfully, kindly, wisely, and who knows? You know, just like you know, I'm really, I'm really um, uh, into uh, supporting trees and tree planting and funding that in different ways, and. Um, I don't know what's going to happen if there was forests being planted, you know, but that's not up to me, right? This is, a, this is an investment for future generations. You plant a tree, it's for future generations, right? But important to plant. So uh, one year, um, are you okay me going on? Is this, is this not too long? Okay, good. Um, so I'm not going to go too long. I'm just, but I could, but I won't. I'll try not to. Um, so, so one year we had uh, Earth Day here and Paul Hawken came and a bunch of other really great speakers. And he, he was writing a book about carbon that he didn't end up uh, producing for some reason, but um, he was called, called Reimagining Carbon. And he said, if you, I don't quite understand this, but I trust his research. He said, if we gathered all the carbon molecules in the Earth, in the atmosphere, maybe not in the, in the atmosphere, and you compressed it, so you compressed all the space out of it, however you would do that, it would fit in the size of a valley this size. The amount of molecules somehow compressed, maybe a scientist might understand that you, if you compressed them, it would fit into San Geronimo Valley, which is the valley we're in. One big diamond. One big diamond, right, one big diamond, okay, one big diamond. So, um, anyhow, so that's just an aside. <laughs> um, you can think about what you imagine this big diamond and then going up into space. But anyhow, um, he said the main issue that we're facing with climate change is not carbon. He said it's we are having a failure of imagination, that we need to imagine the unimaginable. Right now, and as each year goes by, and as the cr- climate crisis deepens, he says we're, we're, we're lacking the imagination to realize that we have the potential to transform the crisis. We have to imagine the unimaginable. Right now, many of us don't imagine we're gonna pull this, we're, we're gonna survive, right? And that's, if you look at the data, there's some good evidence for that. But, you know, he said, look to human history. Look at, you know, look at the galvanizing, the mobilization that happened during Second World War, you know, and the New Deal. Look at the human, humanity's response to slavery. Slavery was the biggest economic system, like capitalism is now, in the 1800s. And a few people, beginning in England, campaigning, the first, the first activist movement, uh, beautiful, a uh, book called Bury the Chains, very profound book on, 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 uh, on the power of a few people to, to galvanize a, a global movement that ended slavery. Um, so, um, you know, and just look at the history of, uh, of things that, that we've come together, just like the, like the ozone hole layer, right? That was once, I don't know, 50, thousand square miles, something just colossal over Australia, you know this, 
And now, because of the the international ban in 1992, whenever it was, and now the 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 hole is shrinking um, significantly. And I think by 2060 or something, they they're saying the hole is going to be completely healed. Right? When I was growing up, that was like an inconceivable, uh, uh, like irreversible, you know, crisis. You know, um, so. Um, you know, and just and just you know, in the last century, just look at this what this country's done around preserving and establishing parks and you know all these amazing legislation that's now sadly being eroded, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and um, so to, to imagine the unimaginable, what would it be like to imagine if you were to hold that possibility? Because right? the truth is, at the moment, this moment, we don't know. We can look at data and go, well, if it goes in one this direction, right? But life isn't about data, and 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 and, and nor human beings. Or, I mean, data is important. Underestimating data because we have an administration that's not really into data right now. But data is very important. But there's also the, the the potential for change and for transformation and innovation and creativity and mobilization. And we can't. Now it doesn't look like much is happening. I was just listening to, I went to see Bill McKibben, who's one of the pioneers, you know, the elders of the environmental movement now. And and someone asked him, you know, what do you see? You know, you've been doing this for 40 years. You know, you must be tired. What do you see that's different? And he says, and he made this really great analogy of that it takes, you know, like it was comparing to the civil rights movement, to the to the LGBTQI movement and that whole massive radical shift uh, or, you know, around um, gay rights that happened a few years ago. He said, it didn't happen out of the blue, right? It's a 20, 30, 40 year movement, right? And he says, and that's exactly where we are in the environmental movement. We've been building for 20, 30, 40 years, 30, 40 years with mostly failures. You know, it's mostly been an unsuccessful movement, relatively, right? But it's growing to the extent that that now it's a you know it's a very different conversation. You, know, you can talk to people who wouldn't have known or cared twenty thirty years ago, and now they're like, oh yeah, right, of course. You know, huge. Uh, there's a huge kind of there's a birthing of of that ecological consciousness, which is what's needed to to make the shift. So, um, friends of mine uh, and Dharma teachers, actually, there's a, several Dharma teachers in England who um, have gotten very involved with the extinction uh, rebellion um, movement in the in England. Again, another interesting example of when we meet when we hit critical mass, they say it takes only 3.5 percent of a population to uh, to create national change. Only 3.5 percent of a population. To, and that's the, that's Howard. So, um, so the climate people are familiar with the climate extinction rebellion movement in England. And it started in Australia, and then, um, uh, but it's really taken off in uh, England. Um, basically, very very uh, peaceful protests, um, but with very strong demands of, de- of 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 demanding that the governments declare climate emergency. And a climate emergency is a very specific set of uh, demands about uh, speaking the truth about climate change, about 
radically reversing of fossil fuel use by 2025, which is one of the seemingly necessary deadlines to, to become carbon neutral, transforming energy systems, transforming agricultural systems, um, carbon credit systems, etc. Anyhow, it was a small movement, but very radical, attracted a lot of attention. They did protests outside of Parliament, protests in the centre of London. And it just caught the imagination of the British people. And somehow people got behind it for the most part. Normally people go, oh, it's just a bunch of greeny lefties, you know. I mean, I was demonstrating in the city of London in the 80s with my mohawk, and that did not get a lot of good press. That was, we were kind of like, oh, there's violent. It was a very non-violent, very, very strategic, very smart, what are you laughing at me? Good mohawk. It was good. It was good. I know. I know. I know. It's. I, I don't look like a mohawk kind of guy, but I was. <laughs> I'll show you photos. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, and um, in, in a remarkable set of. I mean, they sort of closed down a little bit central London, um, but people sort of were mostly in a good British way. Like, oh well. We're stuck in traffic. Jolly good. Well, let's have a cup of tea. <laughs> I'm sure everything will be solved with a cup of tea. Uh, got through the war. And, um, <laughs> and, and then, and then the sort of the, the, eventually the, the protests sort of dispersed. But the, the, very quickly, the Labour Party, which is the opposition party, and then the government, and then all governments of the United Kingdom, Wales, Scotland, England, Ireland, declared uh, climate emergency, the first countries in the world to declare climate emergency, which means that, that you know, if ratified, it requires you know, many more steps, but it basically means this government is recognizing we are in an emergency and therefore we need to take drastic, radical emergency solutions. Right? That, that's the theoretical consequence, and not necessarily there yet, but just what I'm pointing to is you know, transformation happens, right? I wouldn't have, you know, if you told me that last year, I'd say there's no way they're going to have any influence. Probably a backlash because people think they're a bunch of lefties and a bunch of, you know, vegan granola, you know, hippies. And suddenly there's like, oh, right. Because people are, you know, this is, this is how the movement is coming to its sort of, you know, prominence because of years and years and years of, grassroots work and people waking up. So and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up in, in a few minutes. So, um, so thank you for your patience. Um, so how, how, do we, how do we respond? How do, what's, what's our role in this? So, so again, Joanna Macy has, um, has framed it uh, and she talks about we're in this phase, and we've been in this phase for a while and probably will be in this phase for a while, what she calls the great turning. The great turning from destructive uh, destructive way of living, consumption, uh, extractive industries, a way, of, a way of living that harms the very earth that we need to uh, to survive on the, the, we're basically killing ourselves at the root and so we're turning from that um, exploitative society to a uh, sustainable society and she said there's three key phases or components to it that we can all be part of in different ways the first phase or the first 
part of the great turning is what she calls holding actions. And holding actions are anything that slows down the uh, the rampantness of the uh, current industrial society, right? So that, that protest that John Seed was doing, slowing down logging, slowing down mining, slowing down the tar sands in Canada, slowing down all this legislation that's coming through to open up drilling and mining and, and fracking in every, uh, in every part of the country. Slowing down that through the courts, through protests, to slow down the, the exploitation. Right? But that's, only, that's where most of environmental movements have put their effort, but that's only one piece of the pie. The second is consciousness raising. Right? This great turning is requiring a radical shift in consciousness seeing our common humanity, seeing the, the, uh, the inherent right of all beings to live. Um, you know, it's the kind of consciousness that, that is um, uh, you know, realizing uh, our interconnectedness, realizing uh, the inhumanity of, say, uh, the, the meat industry and the dairy industry. Um, so what we're doing here, we're part of the conscious race, waking up. Mindfulness is part of that turning. And then the third is alternative forms or alternative structures. Organic farms, sustainable communities, this thing called transition towns. Basically ways that we're living in, you know, green energy, uh, sustainable housing, sustainable transportation systems. They're all ways that we can um, live more more sustainably, harmoniously. And so you might think about, well, where can I engage in that? You know, and I, I, I think the UN, um, uh, with, with the various reports, um, you know, they said the three main, the three top things you can do as an individual um, in terms of your own actions, right? And of course, the, the, this whole Partly this crisis we're in is because we're told this is an individual problem because we live in an individual culture. And so the blame is usually put on the individual. So we were told, well, if you think plastic's a problem, you should recycle. That's the problem. You're not recycling enough. No, the problem is we're producing a billion bottles of plastic bottles every day. That's the problem, not the fact that people aren't recycling the damn things. You can't do much with them anyway once it's recycled. The problem is in the structure. This is a structural problem, not an individual problem. We can make some small individual differences, but the change is going to happen at the, the macro level. So um, three things we can do, the most important things we can do. One is eat a more plant-based or plant-forward diet which means radically reducing our meat consumption, our dairy consumption, um, because of the, the, you know, the, 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 the meat industry being one of the biggest sources of climate change and deforestation. And there's two more. I need some help with the memory here. The second, I think, is uh, uh, using, um, uh, switching to alternative forms of uh, fuel. So, um, solar panels, green cars, walking, biking, uh, public transport, um, any way that you cannot be using fossil fuel. 
And then the third is... Building technology? Is it? Is it? Is that the third? I think so. Yeah, there was three. Is it you were nodding? No? James? No? You were, no so, so maybe some, some more sustainable buildings and, and, and definitely that's a... Hmm? Energy efficiency. Energy efficiency, right, right. So that, that's what we can do on an individual level or in a, through our work and through our organizations. Um, and just lastly, there are you know, really great organizations. So the, the main one from, that's evolved through the Buddhist, through the Insight Network, is the Insight, uh, is One Earth Sangha. One Earth Sangha. They do great work, very informed. Kristen Barker is the ED, and uh, Lou Richmond, uh, the, the founders, and um, uh, they do things like, like this thing called the EcoSat for training. Um, Buddhist Peace Fellowship is also doing good work in this area. Um, Extinction Rebellion, um, really doing very inspiring work. And uh, also organization called Declare Climate Emergency. And then there's Climate Mobilization. So many, many. Um, <coughs> but in terms of Dharma, if you want more Dharma resources, I would go to uh, one of the Sangha and a book I'm currently reading, called Eco-Dharma by David Loy, um, Buddhist Responses to the Ecological Crisis. It's a real page turner. Um, no, I shouldn't say that's really, that's really um, a rude thing to say. <laughs> I'm actually really, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm just trying to bring humor in because it's a heavy topic. So, um, and it's a, it actually, it's a great book. It's beautifully written. Um, it's very, very eloquent, and it's really clear. So if, you, if you're really wanting to understand um, uh, you know, a deep Buddhist response and, 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 and uh, assessment of climate change, I think it's one of the most uh, effective and you know, clear books that I've come across. So, and it's just recent, just come out. Okay, let's take a few deep breaths. Let's do a little. Str- in fact, let's all stand up. Let's just. I mean, sitting in a row. My apologies for going on so long. I don't really need to apologize, but I'm English, so that's what we do. We apologize. <laughs> apologize for existing. Apologize for being here. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but Extinction Rebellion put a pink boat in Trafalgar Square. You can't argue with that. <laughs> Right, they sunk. I'm sure, I'm sure that's why it works. Because it just made everybody laugh. <laughs> and, you know, things have got to be good people because they make us all laugh. Right, right. It was very funny <laughs> and playful. Right, big pink boat. Right, pirate boat. And and they sunk into the road so the the police couldn't get it out. And <laughs> <laughs> everybody thinks it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was a really great education around how you bring humor and playfulness and lightness and. And they did like they did amazing things that, like, whenever there was in England, whenever there's a, 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 an action, a rebellion, you know, a demonstration, 
there's always there's particular parties that get involved, the Socialist Worker Party and the Revolution of Communist Party and the, and, the, and the anarchists, and they basically try to cause trouble and get violent and smash things. And, and, and so they, the Extinction Rebellion, they work closely with the police, so whenever they saw someone who was going to cause trouble, they would tell the police to pull them out. So the, they worked really closely with the police. Then it was very, very warm, and the police were really on their side. And it just was like, oh, that's how you win. That's how you win over minds, you win hearts, right? It, this is a you know peaceful, collaborative, you know, appealing to people's good nature, you know, and, and the fact that their parents and grandparents and and you know. All right, good. So. Um, so I want us to do a little reflection around this because um, I've shared a lot and it's a lot to listen to and a lot to hold. And um, so, uh, so let's sit back down for a second. <clears throat> and let's just close our eyes. And first, just noticing what your experience is here right now. What do you, how's your body feeling? What are you feeling in your heart, if anything, especially in response to this, this issue? And if you can, try naming what's here, maybe one, maybe many things. And then being aware of your mind, what's present in your mind, thoughts, ideas, plans, memories. And then to hold the question, what arises for you from the context of your own practice? Mindfulness, kindness, the work that you've done this week. What arises for you in response to the climate crisis or the ecological crisis? What, What arises for you? Feelings, thoughts, Clarity, confusion, desire to do something, desire to run away or avoid, desire just to numb out and go to bed, desire to collaborate. desire to step up your engagement or educating yourself or 
collaborating with others. Um, living one's life more in harmony with, more simply, more sustainably. Oh, there may not be that much comes up. Maybe this may not be a strong issue for you. You've got your other focus and plans and ways you engage in the world and service and helping others. And if this, this reflection, this, this theme touches you and um, inspires you or motivates you, what? Out of your time here this week, touching deeply into the earth and reflecting on the state of the world, what, what, what are you inspired to do? If there's one thing that you were motivated to do, This has been a recording by Mark Coleman. Thank you for listening. To learn more about my work and to hear about other free recordings, please visit my website at markcoleman.org.